add passion and stir. Is the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. I'm here in Washington, D.C. today with my sister, Debbie Shore. Deb, welcome back. I know. I'm glad to be here. It's been a while. We've done a few without you. I know. No no fun without you. (laughs) Uh, And I'm here also with Adele Fabricant, who is the uh, executive director for this region for Teach for America and an amazing educator. And we're really thrilled to have you. Thank you. Glad to be Um, here. And also, Chef. Seth Wells from Rose's Luxury. Um, everybody wants to talk Everyone's about favorite Rose's restaurant. Luxury. It's going to be kind of a miracle if my sister or if Adele and I get a word in edgewise here because <laughs> my sister could talk about every item on the menu at Rose's Luxury and you so probably good. could too. And you were just there, Adele? You said uh, you had a, what, a family celebration? I, what was my sister's 40th birthday. Was November. it your first time there? Uh, it was. Yeah. It was. It was great. Did it we live up to expectations? Time. Expectations Absolutely. are high. Yes, they are. That must, high. I want to ask you about that later, about how you can continue we to had, live up to them. We had to time um, our reservations. Like when They open up at a certain time, and so we had to. We were all organized. We had a couple different contingency plans to make sure that we got the day we wanted. So did, we did you excited. have the sausage, habanero, lychee salad? Please say yes. yes. Somebody had it. Yes, we did. It's just like... You close your eyes when you eat it. It's so good. You're mm-hmm. like, what is that? You know, it's so unusual and so wonderful. Well, and the drinks were great, too. Everything is I'm good. I'm sure it was no remarkable coincidence. Yeah, everything is good. Well, let's hear from the expert on Rose's Luxury <laughs> and the different things there. First, Seth, tell us, how, how did you end up there? What was your path? I've been in cooking for the past 17 years. Uh, I've been in D.C. since 2009, or Northern Virginia, D.C. area. Uh, in 2014, I left my position as sous chef at Iron Gate in Dupont. Wait, how old started at the beginning? How old were you when you started cooking? 15 years old. And you knew then that you wanted to be a cook? Not at all. Really? I okay. was trying to pay for car insurance as a high school kid. When I when it was time to look for colleges, I actually visited a culinary school, and I hated it. It's like I don't want to do this. And then I, I'm not sure what what spurred the change, but I ended up going to culinary school. And then kind of fell in love with the industry. You were Johnson & Wales? Yes, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. I just kind of fell in love with the industry. It took me out to Montana, spent some time, three summers in Glacier National Park out there, uh, working for their uh, concessionaire, and then down in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, before coming back to uh, Virginia, or coming back to the East Coast, which took me to Virginia. And then in 2009, I ended up working for Tony Chittam, now of Iron Gate at Vermilion in Old Town, Alexandria. Worked for him for two years. Took a little bit of time off of cooking, came back to uh, D.C. and took a job at the newly renovated and newly opened mini bar. And this then, Jose Andres. Yep. yep. And then um, from there, uh, Tony Chittam reached out to me about uh, opening Iron Gate with him. Uh, so I took that position as a sous chef there and then was there for a year uh, and then applied to a, for a position with uh, Aaron at Rose's Luxury. Um, and ended up taking a cook position there in 2014, and of you know 2014 to now, more or less running the kitchen, which is. And when, when you apply for a job like that, you have to come in and you have to cook, and he has to taste it and say. So it's like an initial sit down interview. Is that how that works? They, we had a that we have a two stage process, and so typically we do a working interview in the morning and then a working interview at night, both shorter than a normal workday, um, and then it's kind of a collective. Uh, meeting with 
the other managers to see kind of where they feel like this person would fit in the team. Um, so, yeah, I was lucky enough. This was right at – I started a week after Bon Appetit, the best new restaurant in America. Yes. So it was uh, It was a very – High very, expectations and – High expectations and just very busy. So when you say working interview, you're in the kitchen cooking. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, so spend a little bit of time prepping and then you spend a little bit of time um, actually working dinner service next to a cook. You're not technically responsible for anything, um, but more or less they just want to see your, your abilities in the kitchen. And you said uh, you fell in love with the industry early on. What what did you fall in love with? Why did, uh, why I mean, did you I fall? I mean, I think that it's a very, it can be a very attractive industry to young people. I mean, I enjoyed the hours. They were fun, obviously. But I think just being in a kitchen in general was uh, was very attractive. The people that you meet, you like from all over the place, you know, from front of house, back of house, uh, it just provided the... I guess the kind of like lifestyle and group of people that I wanted to be around. I just kind of like fell into it from there and never looked back. I wish I could remember. We had another really successful chef on who started by trying to pay because he had to pay his car insurance, just just like what you were saying. He had a car and he was like in high school and he needed to pay. I, don't know, I can't remember uh, who it was, but I thought that may not be an uncommon story. Yeah, and, I think and, it's an easy way to get – it's an easy way to make some money when you're younger. But you yeah. also, yeah, I mean, you obviously, you're at the kind of the top of the game, at least in the restaurant business, not just in Washington, but Rose's Luxury is now known everywhere. Um, you had a, a skill or a talent that um, you you knew you had, you didn't know you had, it came out, you must have worked real hard too, but, but did you recognize it at some point? Did you know you had something special? No, and I would say to a certain extent, I still don't. I just... Uh, so interesting. Feel, I, I, I don't know. I... I, I <laughs> I think there's like understanding your strengths and your like weaknesses as a person or as a professional. I couldn't tell you why Aaron offered me the job or why I am where I am now other than like working hard and like taking myself out of the picture most of the time and looking at looking at the the, the we call it, we say the bigger picture a lot but looking at how our day-to-day affects you know everybody not just me and like what we look for in new managers is exactly that is like you stop caring so much about what your day looks like, how bad your day is, and you start to like think about everybody else's day and how what you do affects that. And so, I think yeah. that applies, you know, uh, to leaders or should apply yeah, to leaders but everywhere. I, I work really hard, and you work really hard, and neither of us could ever cook at Rose's Luxury. Are you <laughs> no, kidding? but but right, well, that's true. But <laughs> I just mean, you know, I think that like I know, ended up in a place because of like the skill set that I had. Like, I think there's like natural leadership qualities right. that most people in leadership positions have. And then, you know, depending on your profession, I've been doing this for 17 years longer than I haven't been cooking. So so I, I think just understanding your industry and what you do and uh, where you are goes a, a really long way. And then I feel like leadership, you know, to a certain extent can be, extent can be taught, but a lot of it is, is pretty natural. Well, I want to get Adele into this conversation because you you're a leader. You've been leading a pretty significant organization here in the region, and I'm curious how this resonates with you. Uh, I know you. St- I think you started as a TIA, Teach for America core member, okay. right? Yeah, I mean, you grew up in in the Washington D.C. area, I went did. to school here, but then started as a Teach for America core member in the Bronx, uh, teaching second grade, as I recall. Which mm-hmm. it sounds to me like maybe the toughest job in the world. <laughs> teaching in the Bronx has uh-huh. just got to be hard. And then I know you kind of like continue your, your education, and now you're running. Teach for America, but uh, do you think of it as an education job? Do you think of it as, of it as a leadership uh, job? I'm just curious what, uh, in terms of what Seth's been saying, how that resonates in terms of how you got to where you are. 
Yeah. Well, so I was when I was listening to Seth, I was thinking about how so many of the same things that he was talking about related to to what kind what great leadership looks, sounds and feels like is so often what we're looking for in our core members. And it's all the things that honestly I aspire toward, which is really to not focus on yourself, but to focus on others. And those make the strongest teachers. Those make the strongest managers. Those make the strongest. So that's a specific thing you look for when you're interviewing for the core. Yes, I mean we as as a national organization, I mean we're one of the most selective organizations in the country, right? Fifteen percent on average of of the folks who apply to Teach for America become core members, and so there's a series, a bunch of different leadership traits that we look for. Um, resilience is one of them. Achievement is another. Um, persistence. There's a whole bunch of different uh, characteristics, many of which fall into some of the things that Seth was talking about. So I was nodding my head yeah. as he was talking because it resonated a lot. So, Deb, you and I could have been Teach for America core members. We could not have thought that it rose is luxury. <laughs> it's just not well, possible. You know, it's just it's hang out for a day. It's the um, I I think I'm a good cook. Yeah, actually. well, well, let's let's uh, okay. be the judge of that. No, okay, I, I really do. But I think it's that I think it's always that mix. Whether you're in nonprofit leadership management like we are, or you know, the education world or the the culinary industry, is that mix of skill that's soft and hard. I I don't like those distinctions, but you know what I mean: the soft skills and the hard mm-hmm. skills. And I would imagine that everybody has a little bit of both, but it's, you know, if you have too much of the hard skills and none of the, you know, real people skills, as they say, then mm-hmm. this is not going to work out. Mm-hmm. Or other way around, you have to have both. You, you kind of get to the top of your game when you really understand where your, where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. Well, Adele, let me go back with you as we did with Seth in terms of when, you know, what started you on this path? How did you decide that you were going to even sign up to be a, a Teach for America Corps member. What was going on with you at the time? Yeah, so I, so as you said, I grew up in in uh, the D.C. area, up by American University Park, and it's still um, funny to me that when I go running, the few times a week that I do, or a month that I do, I run by my old house, um, and so. But being back in D.C. has been really incredible, and I very committed to to the region, both because I have two kids who are you know currently in public schools here. And my whole career for the last 20 years has been committed to public education. Um, but your question is, how did I get into this? My my degree is in architecture. I had originally, uh, ever since I was eight and, and knew or thought anyway that making Legos was what architecture was, I had decided then that I was going to become an architect. And so I you know, went to school in Colorado and, and um, studied environmental design and ended up you know, graduating with a degree in, in architecture. And it was in my final year of college when I was um, I was done with all my core subject or courses, and I was volunteering in a in a community of Denver, and I was reading with students, um, and it went from being like an hour a week to being like every day after school and starting a series of after school programs because I loved working with students. And the teacher who I was working with at the time said, "Hey, you know, this is really something you ought to consider." And I said, what are you talking about? I, I'm going to be an architect. That's been my whole my whole life. That's my plan. And at that point, fortunately, Teach for America was at its infancy, right? We were in our first 10 years, and so no one knew about it. And, and I thought, okay, there's this thing called Teach for America. So I applied both to Teach for America and to the Peace Corps um, in the off chance I thought that it actually was an option. Um, and I ended up getting into both of them. But deciding to stay domestic and deciding to stay in the country, and we you know what began as a two-year commitment, and I thought I was just going to, you know, start teaching and finish teaching in two years, ended up becoming what has been the last twenty years um, in public education. Because when you see the inequities that you see when you teach in the South Bronx after growing up as privileged as I did in Upper Northwest DC, you you cannot walk away. You cannot you cannot turn and go back to 
the originally scheduled programming. And what is it that you saw in the South Bronx? Like, what's that inequity look like? I, mean, I think I know what you mean because we talk about it a lot, but you've actually seen it, and yes. some of us only read about it in the papers. Well, and to be clear, I hadn't—I had never seen it before, right? Like, I had—I had grown up in public schools in D.C. and in L.A., um, and so to to go to New York and and we talk about one system in New York City, we talk about one system in in D.C., but what is happening in the Bronx is not the same thing as what's happening in the public school system in Manhattan. There are not the same resources available, um, and students are coming to school without clothing, without food without, you know, some of the basic um, things that are really part of what makes school a place that and learning a place that can be accessible to all. And the reality is, is that that's still one system. It's the New York City Department of Education. It's the D.C. public school system. And yet what's happening in Ward 3, where my students are, where I went to school and where my kids go to school, is not the same as what's going on in Ward 7 and 8. And again, it's one system. And so, and in the Bronx and Ward 7 and 8, uh, as a result, you're saying these kids are they're not going to have the same chances. They're not going Absolutely to have the same opportunities. Not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Different quality of teachers or just it's the resources and the problems that they bring to the classroom? I just, I mean, I just. And their living wanna, conditions, I'm imagining. Try to make it as palpable as we can, like what this inequity looks and feels like. So in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, I was teaching at um, a school on 179th Street in Tremont. It's a public school, actually, that was just closed recently. And it was uh, a school where um, we probably had close to 800 elementary school students. And those students were coming to school um, in uniforms every day. And they did not uh, have clean clothing, right? Many of my second graders would come to school without uh, clean clothes and, and who um, were not, did not have breakfast often. And it was a, it was a food desert there. The, there was one pizza shop on the corner, but there were not, uh, there was just not a wealth of, of what we oftentimes think of as being basic things like restaurants or drugstores or other places. And so their community itself was not a place that looked, sounded, and felt like the communities where, where I grew up. So there was hunger coming into your classroom, which obviously is a barrier. Yes. Yeah. Among many others. Right. And, and in, a, in the same way that Seth talked about kind of falling in love with the industry after just cooking for a little while, did you fall in love with education, with being an educator, with um, you know uh, recruiting people into that kind of service? Well, I, I really found a, a sense of purpose in a way that I had not with architecture, right? Like, I mean, in architecture, you know, you leave your mark on the world, you know, air quotes, um, but you were really having an impact on the world by working with students. And so I, I really found that so many of the things that I value about equity and, and civil rights and, and justice um, showed up in the work that I was doing with my students. And so because of that, I felt like I had I had an opportunity to to to, to do more with, with what privilege I had been afforded um, and that I really wanted to be a part of ensuring that we provided the same opportunities for all. Do, do you feel like... Um do you have a sense of the core members or the Teach for America um, teachers who, you know, have gone through their two years and are they mostly involved in sort of social community work afterwards? Because, you, you know, what you said really struck me when you said when you see this, you, know, you can't go back to business as usual. So do, do a lot of them fall into some kind of, uh, you know, community or social kind so, of impact work. So I can speak both nationally and regionally. And because I'm the leader of the D.C. region, I'll speak to, to the region specifically. So so we have about 3,000 folks who have um, who have finished their minimum two-year commitment. We call them alumni. And of the 3,000 people who are in the Teach for America community in the D.C. region, 
uh, about uh, 40% of them are people who are still in education. So they could be leading in classrooms, they could be leading schools or school systems. Um, We also have a bunch of folks who are working in nonprofits that are related to education. Um, And then we have 12% of folks who are in government policy and advocacy, which is not a remarkable coincidence Mm -hmm. because it's the, you know, federal government down here. A lot of policy think tanks and that kind of thing. And then we have, I think it's 6% of folks who are in business, 6% who are in law. Um, so not everyone is directly connected mm-hmm. still to the to directly in classrooms or in schools. But I would offer that because of the experiences that they have, their orientation and commitment to that yeah. work is maintains. I just flew back from Mexico um, a couple of days ago, and on my plane was a, a young man and his wife and their three kids expecting a fourth. They were both Teach for America uh you know, teachers, one in Kansas City, one in New York, and then they were put together because they were getting married. And so the, you know, Teach for America put them in the same city. But now they're living in Mexico and they're teaching. And it was just for them, you know, it was a very similar conversation. It was just, you know, once they started to see what's happening in the classroom, they that's what they knew they had to do for the rest mm-hmm. of their lives. That's what they're doing. Yes. I mean, that's the other thing Teach yeah. for America does by coincidence is matchmake. <laughs> there's a, a lot, lot of that, huh? There's a lot of yeah, a they, lot of they, that. that they, they both met at Teach for America. Yes. Uh, yeah. Seth is, you know, we're talking about mm-hmm. these types of issues. One of the things I know about Rose's Luxury is that Rose's Luxury is really involved in the community. Uh, they've been a big supporter of Share Our Strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign. I'm sure you get asked to do many, many things in addition to that. Um, are you uh, personally at the place that yet where you have to? balance those or are you able to focus you know more on cooking and that's somebody else's concern in, in the restaurant right now my focus is mostly on on cooking my involvement now with like chef cycle is my first venture into the i guess the uh charitable side of this um, my first kind of, of reach outside of my everyday to to kind of give back and chef cycle is this 300-mile, three-day ride in Santa Rosa to raise money for, yes. for right. No Kid Hungry. So, Seth is especially valuable to us because he's a chef <laughs> and a cyclist. Right. And we do this 300-mile nice. ride, which will raise about $2 million. It's coming up in wow. May. And Seth, this will be – he's an experienced rider more than anybody at this table. Um, but it'll be your first ride for us, right? Yeah. I remember yeah. when I was working for Tony at Iron Gate, and the first one popped up. I believe it was from New York back to D.C. Right. I was – I was trying to get you on that ride. I really, really, really I, I do wanted remember to that. do it. And, yep. Uh, things just didn't didn't yeah. really work out. But um, there's always more to learn in the business that we're currently in. But I, you know, I think looking out to see what else we can do. I also have a a, a new father, so I have a five month old daughter. She's almost oh, five months old. Congratulations! And so that kind of puts things into perspective and makes you yep. wonder what it's going to be like for her when she starts school and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, hopefully we're in a position where we can provide the things that she needs um, and a little bit beyond that. But uh, I think a, a lot of these topics are going to start to come up in my life, I believe, a little bit more. And so, you know, I would like to be able to to give back to the community. And, you know, I'm not from D.C. From North Carolina? Correct. Right. Said that I was going to not stay here very many times mm-hmm. and I'm here and it's 10 years later. You know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I've found a home here. Maybe I... Maybe I haven't, but I would like to, in whatever community I'm in, be able to give back uh, through what I do. I want to spend a couple of minutes on food and, and just talk about Rose's Luxury mm-hmm. specifically. And I'm really interested in, uh, and Deb, you can you know, jump in here and talk about your favorite dishes at any point. But uh, I'm really interested in how you think about what you're trying to get across to your, your guests or your customers and uh, what the vibe is that you try to create there and um, 
and the degree to which your food and your cooking is kind of an expression of your creativity. How do you how do you think of that? So our, one of our like our mission statement is is to be the most enjoyable place to dine and to work in. For us, that's like true luxury. Um, we want everyone to feel like they walk in, they sit down, they they're going to be taken care of. This is regardless of what's going on outside. Um, you know, in their normal day and their work, we want this to be a place where people feel comfortable and they can just kind of like let go and feel like they're at home. That's that's kind of been Aaron's mission from the beginning. Uh, as far as like my personal food and the food that hits the table, you know, we're we're always looking to do something a little bit different. But we want to have a good time. We want we want to create food that you know people can relate to. You know, is putting strawberries and tomato sauce different and kind of strange for people to think about? Yeah, but that's that. You know, it's like something very um, I don't know, special about the food that we that we try to create and we try to put out to the tables. Uh, we want we want people to like. That's a big thing in going out to eat. It's not just like catching up with friends, catch up with family. Especially in D.C., people do it because they want to eat good, yep. eat good food. And so, I think at the end of the day, it's the the processes that we go through at, at Roses may be a little bit different than other restaurants. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to cook food that we're excited to cook. And that and food that we feel people are going to be excited to to consume, whether it's you know bringing back old dishes from the past or never taking the pork and leachy salad off the menu. You know, like those are those are things Can't like happen. although you took the brisket off, I think it's back. Is it's it back? back in a different form. Okay. Right. Well, the brisket the, just melts in your mouth. The new form is my what, attempt the as a North Carolinian to make fun of Ooh. some barbecue. Uh, maybe make fun of South Carolina and Texas at the same time because <laughs> uh, we don't cook brisket as bar- for barbecue like. Where I grew up, it's like pork shoulder or whole hog, and that's it. South Carolina uses like a mustard-based sauce, so we're smoking brisket that's been rubbed in yellow mustard and then served with uh, like South Carolina style mustard sauce um, and some pickles that my grandmother used to make when I was a kid. I think you know grandmothers are a big influence, aren't they? They are. Yeah, I I didn't really realize. So big. I uh, I was actually fortunate enough to have my uh, mother and uh, stepdad in town this past weekend, and they got to eat at Rose's and. For like the final bite, we've always served this like Benny seed brittle, and I've been working on these pulled mints that that. that I grew up making with my great aunt, my uh, my mother's aunt, and so it was never anything that I really held on to as like a, a reason for my cooking or a reason for me getting in this industry until like like took them up to the table and I dropped them off and I was like, you know, nobody else hears how these, but I know my mom's familiar <laughs> with them. So it's, I, I don't know. Your mom didn't have to stand in line, did she? They they actually were able to obtain a uh, reservation on the oh, roof garden. Okay. So we right. can get right. I was going to say, Dal, I don't know if this happened with you, but when I go, I feel like it's such a interesting mix of you know very different food, mm-hmm. but very comfortable setting. Right. And usually, if you have food like a lychee uh, habanero salad, you know you're going to think it's going to be a different setting. I mm-hmm. think a different environment. Mm-hmm. So I think there's that element. And the other element that I think about a lot there is that very keen sense of listening, uh, not necessarily you know, listening and observing that the servers have when you get there and the hostess, everybody there. They're really watching the table and they know when to come over. They know when to be funny. They know when to be – like they just know what's going on because they're paying attention. And it's a, it's a, something that I watch out mm-hmm. for because I know about it in hospitality, but most people don't even know that that's happening. You know, a big part of our like – working interview process is to sit down and we feed whoever is like staging for a job at the end of their second stage. And that is precisely so they can like see what that's like, because, you know, we can put up good food or not good food. It doesn't matter. But like what really like 
makes an, an experience at Roses an experience at Roses is like the second you walk in and talk to a host to the, to the time that your check has dropped and like maybe you're new to the city and your your servers just told you like where you should go next or what you should be doing next or other restaurants to, to, to check out um, and, and the service that they provide is like for me and like I remember my first experience is it was, it was the best service the most thoughtful and like caring service mm-hmm. that I had had and so I feel like food gets gets a lot of credit but we try to give just as much if not more to the front house because of the work that they do and like the amount of, of caring that goes on on their end as well explain what it means to stage not everybody might be familiar with that. Well, it's like the working interview and so most I would say most professional kitchens require a working interview which we call a stage it's or a Short for a French term, stagiaire, which would be like an apprentice or something like that. Okay. So you're actually cooking as part of the interview? Yeah. 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 Or at least like working along somebody, alongside um, somebody. I don't know if you saw as you were talking about the front of the house and uh, this, um, I guess, sense of hospitality. There was a story in the New York Times this weekend by Frank Bruni about uh, for, about uh, what what are the right restaurants for people over 50. This was written for Debbie and, and myself. But, um, well, Always no. a zinger. <laughs> whoa, whoa. You're, you're, you're not still fantasizing that you're under 50, are you? <laughs> uh, but anyhow, what they said was they quoted our friend Danny Meyer, uh, who, who in turn quoted James Beard. And whenever James Beard was asked what's his favorite restaurant, he would always say, same as yours, the one that loves you the most. Mm-hmm. And that's really like, yeah. that's, you know, yeah. that's what you were talking about, I think, in terms of what you get across. Mm-hmm. I think people always go back for a meal that may not have, you know, exceeded their expectation as long as they felt cared for. Right. But they'll never, for me and my friends, because we talk about this all the time and we eat out a lot, I'm never going back to a place. I don't care how good the meal was. <laughs> if, I, if I was somehow, you know, uh, you know, if I wasn't treated the right way, yeah, mm-hmm. right. so it's that's really that's really what you're left with. And when you have both, like Rosa's Luxury does, I mean, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You've got a real winner. So Adele, I wanted to ask you as, as Debbie was talking about kind of like the uh, just how physically demanding the work is that Seth does to be a, a chef. Uh, I was thinking about how your work is is demanding, you know, in a kind of almost like a psychological sense. You're talking about you know the inequalities that you see. How do you keep your team from getting discouraged when they're fighting such an uphill battle to turn around our educational system? What are your, some of your strategies? Because I feel like Teach for America is such a breath of fresh air. But I also know that some Teach for America alums leave the, the program thinking like, wow, that was so much harder than I thought it was going to be. They're, to a person, they've all been glad that they've done it and found it rewarding. But it is really, really Hard work, and mm-hmm. I'd love to, you know, just hear your sense of that. I think all of us, all the all the folks who finished the two years, um, about you know eighty five percent of them do in the DC area, but um, all of them walk out and say, "Wow, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done." Um, and, and granted, a lot of folks who apply to Teach for America and become the core members are people who are your type A overachiever who is used to right, like getting straight A's, and despite your best efforts in the classroom. Um, it's going to be really, really hard. And as Seth was saying earlier, you know, you it, it's tough. You can't really teach someone how to be a relationship builder. You, it's it's tough to teach people how to be a leader, right? So so much of it has to do with your muscle and your intuition. Um, and because it's such a people business, right? Um, I can't think of any more of a people centered place than a school where it's all it all hinges on relationships between people, which makes it such an emotional experience for our core members and our teachers and, 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 you know, and our leaders. Um, 
and thereby our staff, because our, our especially our coaches, our, we call them our MTLDs, our managers of teacher leadership development, are are in are in it with our teachers day in and day out, trying to make sure that they're staying focused on their students and, and, and doing whatever they need to do to take care of themselves. But that's that's a really tough thing to, to do, right? Because because especially our coaches are absorbing so much of that emotional energy and trying to keep people anchored on the future when, you know, the day-to-day is really tough, especially in those first three months as a, as a first-year teacher. I mean, I'll never forget those first three months. They were just... What, what did it feel like? Because <laughs> I'm guessing most of the teachers have been successful at everything they've done in life. That's how they got to be in the core in the Many first of place. Them, absolutely. So what were those first three months like for you? I mean, I... I I mean, I, I did you go home crying? I, I absolutely went home crying. Oh, I mean, there were there were, and I'm not a crier really. I mean, I I I absolutely had moments in the classroom where I thought to myself, "Gosh, if I could, if I could just, I don't know that I'm doing a good job. Like, I don't know if I'm doing the students a favor by being in here. Am I better than what would have been in here had I not been here?" Um, and so the the battle with the dialogue that goes on in your head. I mean, I I think that's one of the most challenging things of of self doubt. Um, can you can you share just kind of. Um, Something that happened maybe early on in your career there or maybe a student that really stands out in your mind that was yes. like so challenging that kept you up at night or maybe even that made Larry, you cry. Larry. What did Larry do? Larry. He was uh, – so I had a – so in this New York City school, there were five grade, five classes of second graders. And the beauty of it was that they put all the students who were highest achieving in one class, all the students who were you know middle to high um, in the second class. And I got the students who had been held over multiple times. Um, and, and so the students were all angry. I mean, they were eight years old to, to, to 11 and they were all in one classroom and there were 25 of them. And I had, you know, I, I had gone to the Teach for America Institute to get trained and I had done everything. I'd worked night after night planning curriculum and Larry just wasn't having any of it. I mean, he just he it was almost like he could just see straight through me. And one of the days uh, it was probably the first day of the second month or something like that. It was it was right when I thought I had like hit my stride. He literally came into the classroom and ripped everything off of my walls. And I had paid my own money to put, you know, to, to decorate my classroom. And I, I mean, painstakingly, you know, bulletin boards are a big deal in the in classrooms in the 90s, right? Like you got graded based on your your bulletin boards. And um, after ripping everything off the walls, he he basically, you know, just decided that he was going to run around in circles and, 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 and refuse to do anything. I asked him to and do something. Larry's sorry. eight, did you say? Larry was, Larry was nine, actually. Nine. He was nine because he had been in second grade before. Oh, very angry. And he had a lot of reasons to be angry. Yeah. From he outside had, the classroom, I'm sure, right? Things yes. Just, what, okay. I mean, he had seen his father shot and killed. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. his mother, um, she was very, very sick and he was very, very angry. And, and mm-hmm. um, school was one of the only places that he could, he could, yeah. you know, he could let all those emotions out. And, uh, and he proceeded to, to be very challenging for the remainder of the year. Our students, some of our students are coming to school without, and, and I was not equipped, right, to, to, to be prepared to, to know how to, how to handle it. So, Del, you as you think about what you've learned and as you've grown, uh, are there ways that you would handle it differently? today. Oh, goodness. I mean, it's been 20 years, so I yeah. should certainly hope so. I mean, I, I will say that, I, you know, I was I was 22 then. I was I made a lot of assumptions about why he was behaving the way that he was behaving. And I think one of the most important things I've learned in the last 20 years is, is not to do that, is to ask questions and to really get to know, you know, to, to get to know him. I would I would really have spent a lot more time more deeply understanding what he was bringing to the classroom, what his set of experiences were, what were his strengths, because everybody has them. And I didn't take the time to do that. I was so frustrated and I was trying so hard to maintain, quote unquote, control over the classroom that I, you know, and I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. I didn't know how to keep it under control. And so I I, I really tried to just exert more control and 
as I've now quickly learned both as a teacher and as a principal and now as a parent, you never win that battle. I think I would have just, I would have taken much more time. I would have slowed down. I would have had not as much of an ego about things, thinking that it was about my failure um, mm-hmm. and making it about me because it really wasn't about me. Right. Easy to say now looking back. So there, there isn't sort of training for those kinds of circumstances where you've got a very troubled student in the classroom and I mean, you know, you're you're taught general, maybe some general training. You're but. taught you're taught how to how to establish boundaries and how to establish expectations. You build the classroom rules together with the class, um, but that that was an extreme situation. That was not that was mm-hmm. not a your standard you know situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when you're a first year teacher, that's a real struggle. So, it sounded like yeah. it maybe did not resolve itself by the time you left that year. I hate to admit it. I hate to admit yeah. it because in the end, um, I, I the, they ended up removing Larry mm-hmm. from my classroom mm-hmm. and putting him into a. a emotionally disturbed class, which meant that he was, you know, then removed from general education. Um, And I feel like that was my my loss, right? Like that was my inability to to really do what was needed for him. But, you know. But again, they're bringing things to the classroom that you have no control over, right? You have control over your classroom, but what happened at home? What happened to his dad, his mom? Right. What well, do you do about that? Well, yes. And schools are schools are expected to be the places where all of those things can come together. All those yeah. services can come together, whether or not those are nutrition services or mental health mm-hmm, services mm-hmm. or health, physical health, you know, you name it. I mean, they, they really we try to in many in many cases, many districts try to, tr- you know, stack schools with all sorts of support so that, you know, schools can. Yeah, we, we've been talking a lot students. about at Share Strength. You know, our mission is to end childhood hunger. Our vision is to end childhood hunger uh, in the United States, and we're making great progress doing that. And we see all the time how kids are stronger and better equipped to get through their schooling and and become you know strong and and productive. But we also recognize that, and we're starting to think about: are there lessons from our no kid hungry work that can be applied to other things that these kids are dealing with? Because even if they are fed, they're you know maybe Larry wasn't hungry. Maybe Larry was hungry, but he was mm-hmm. angry for all kinds of other reasons, as as you were saying. Mm-hmm. And how do we, you know, as a community, as a nonprofit organization, as an educator, how do we surround these kids with what they really need to thrive? Because until we do that, yeah. and it's, it's going to be Larry's. It's always more than one thing, right? It's, it's never it's, just it's a, always a, yeah, a often a multitude. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. Mm-hmm. Set the chefs have moments of self doubt in the kitchen the way teachers do in the classroom. Go crying I think that I think that's kind of what separates. I don't want to say successful people, but and I guess everyone's level of success is different. But that's something that you know self doubt's not. I'm not new to that. Or when you spend as much time with people every day, I think it's tough to feel like you've really hit a home run every day. Yeah, there's days that are great and there's days that are bad, but like. If you don't really think that, like, we can all do it a little bit better in one way or another, then I don't know. I feel like that's, like, for me personally, that's what's, like, pushed me in the direction that I've gone, I guess, is, is like, always pushing to be, to do better, to be better. You know, especially right now, like, my job has become, I don't want to say less about food because I'm definitely responsible for the food that is served, but uh, we've taken a different kind of uh, approach to to being a chef, I guess, um, and we focus on leadership a lot at Roses uh, within the group within Roses Restaurant Group, and that's been and that's been my thing is like is pushing the managers that are below me or that work with me to to get into a you know basically like train people for the next the next job, I guess. But but I think self doubt is important, and if you mm. if, if you feel like that comfortable with that you're crushing your job every single day, then 
I, I don't know. I don't know what that feels like, so I don't know what the next step from there is. But, <laughs> but I think self-doubt's important, and, like, that's that's part of becoming a, a leader and, like, building those relationships. How much creativity – I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. no I was going to ask how much creativity – I wanted to know from both of you, how much creativity do you have in your job? How much freedom do you both have to do what you want to do outside of those parameters that you're given? I'll say as much as I want. Aaron's very uh, free with his creativity for us. Um, I think at that point it's determining what we want to work on. And, and Aren't there some non, non-negotiables, though? Like pork and leachy salad? Something like that. <laughs> like you wouldn't add, you know, like apples to that. I mean, there's some things you just wouldn't change, right, because they're so perfect or I don't know. Uh, I think we're always I think I need one the, now. We're, I need to go get one. We're always up for the conversation. But, but hmm. for us now, you know, I think the non-negotiable is to continue everyone's learning whether they be a cook, a junior sous chef, a sous chef. Um, and, and right now that, you know, that I think that focus has been on leadership as much as it has been food, which is, a, which is new to this industry and for, for yeah. what I'm used to. I mean, the example you gave of the, the brisket, brisket yeah. right? So he was open to you, like bringing your own version of that. Yeah. Sense, I mean, so. you know, we're allowed to work on whatever we want to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all have our day to day responsibilities, but for the most yep. part, we can, do whatever we want to do as long as our job is getting done and we're continuing to, to, to push. I think we should go in and have the last word on the brisket. I think that would be yeah. an important <laughs> well, I mean, contribution. It's, it's, it's time. <laughs> it's time to go back. Yeah. And so, Dells, what kind of latitude do you have to bring creativity to your role as a leader? So so we actually have a lot. Um, there, was a, there was a point in time at Teach for America where – um, the national organization really mandated program and mandated budget and mandated staffing. And a couple of years ago, right around the time that I became the executive director, so that's about five years ago now, uh, we really turned our focus you know, to the communities that we serve. And so I like to think of creativity and innovation as being things that are differentiated and specific and responsive to the communities that we're serving, while at the same time also being creative. And so I'm very proud to be able to say that I that we are um, we are very active partners in the sense that we are we've done a lot more listening than we have um, in the past, and we've been able to rebuild relationships and really respond to what our partners want and need um, in a way that is, I think, very creative and um, certainly makes the work possible. And, and probably makes it more fulfilling for everybody who's involved Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. What What would you both l- like to hear people say about your own leadership? If somebody could describe it, what would you hope they would say about you as a leader, Adele? I think the first few words that come to mind are authentic, uh, humble, uh, and focused. Those are probably my top Good combination. Top three words. How about you, Seth? Mm, I'll steal humble. Uh, I would <laughs> like to be... Someone that listened in whatever instance may be and genuine. Yeah, those are good. Um, let's talk about Chef Cycle. Uh, I had, so you, Seth, have been a cyclist for a while, and I've read that you commute to work every day without exception on your bike. I also read that you were trying to, you were involved in an effort to make DC a better city for bikes. What's hmm. that mean? Are you responsible for that extra lane that almost kills me every time I get out of a cab? You know, a better city for bikes, I think D.C. gets a – unless you live here and you ride your bike here every day, it gets a bad rap. It's like in the top 25, like, worst cities to ride a bike in. To ride a bike, in. to, work, to, to, commute, to commute by in. bike. Um, I could see that. But the the community of cyclists here in D.C., you know, cycling is not something I did before I moved up here. I didn't have a car when I got here, so I needed to 
get to and from work. Um, I wasn't super close to a metro. wasn't comfortable to take a bus because I don't really like public transportation that much. Um, so I bought a bike and I started going back and forth. It was like six and a half, seven miles each way. You know, it started out with that, and then I started to ride on my days off. Um, then I started hanging out with people that rode bikes, and the the group of cyclists here and and, and the community of cyclists here in DC is uh, very deep, and there are a lot of people that are very very passionate about it. And I was I've been fortunate enough to meet a handful of those people. And as long as I'm going to continue to ride in DC, and other people are going to continue to ride in DC, and there's plenty of company or plenty of nonprofits out there that want to help make DC a better place. If I want my daughter to be a part of it as well, then I would, you know, like to continue to make this a better place to to ride and to and a more enjoyable place to ride. Um, I'm comfortable riding in traffic. I do it every day, coming from uh, Glover Park to Southeast. Um, but it's it's something that cycling became much more than just a means of transportation for me. I, like I said, it was. At one point, it became a release for me. It's how I, like, clear my head before I go to work. It's how I wake up in the morning. It's something that I, I just care a lot about, and it's, you know, A, it's good for me, um, but B, it's got me in touch with a, a number of people that, like, I couldn't imagine cycling in D.C. without. And so I think that's what keeps you going. Like, that's yeah. what really is the cherry on top, right, is mm-hmm. just, like, all these new friends, and you all have this passion. And yeah. and what we found nationally is it's amazing how many chefs ride or cyclists. Yeah, well, it's funny how riders. many of like, and I was surprised until, you know, people like Chris Cosentino, they're professional cyclist or competitive cyclist previous to, to being chefs. And, you know, I, I grew up riding a bike, but never really got into it. And and now it's... You're going to have such a great time in Santa Rosa. You're not excited. Gonna, you are really going to have a good well, time. And I have a feeling, it's a, it's a three-day event, but I have a feeling this hour is the most that Woody and I are going to be with you because <laughs> we'll probably be with you for the first three minutes of the ride and then we'll see you at the end of the day because there's a group of elite riders that really, they really roar. Adele, one of the things I wanted to ask you about the school system here and, you know, we talk about schools a lot at Share Strength because all of our programs are executed through the school system, school lunch, school breakfast and so forth. And you and I have talked about that and obviously such a strong connection between kids eating and their health and their ability to learn and educational achievement. As somebody who's had the vantage point that you've had in the classroom now running uh, this region's Teach for America, if you could if you could start with a clean slate, um, you could just design it fresh, what would it look like? How would it be different from what it is now? What's our school system need that it doesn't have, our public schools? Gosh, you know, no one's ever asked me. It's that kind of question. an unfair question. I should have given you like a week's notice for a question <laughs> no, like that. No, I mean, there are so it's many. A big question, yes, but, it's a, well, it's a great you'd, question. You'd be the perfect person to to think about that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I, I mean, I think there are so many things that we need to do differently in our school system. I think, I think the thing that that always gets me about the way that we think about schools is that somehow it feels like schools have become about adults. Or many things have become about the about adults, and at the end of the day, the the thing that is that has to anchor every decision and every conversation that we're having about schools is what students need. And the reality is, is that there's no there's no two students who are the same. There are no two classrooms that are the same. There are no two schools that are the same. There's no two districts that are the same. And we spend a whole bunch of time talking about how different things are to the point of almost making it divisive. And so what I'm what I'm saying what I'm, I'm I feel like I'm saying two different or 
two different things, which is both like, let's say, let's let's focus our conversations on students, make sure that the decisions we're making are focused on students. And we have to start there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can do that without blowing the whole thing up, right? We can just change the way that we're engaging in a conversation. And let's also talk about what our common goals are instead of talking about the, the differences between one jurisdiction and another, which we work across three different states now, four different jurisdictions, and everybody wants to be different and everybody is special, right? And I, I as the person who is working across the region, one of my favorite parts of my job is the fact that we work in Prince George's County, we work in D.C. public schools, we work in the D.C. charter schools, but now we work in Alexandria. And yes, those systems are, are, are different, but they're all, we're all working toward the same thing, right? We're all working toward students being successful and, and ultimately closing the achievement gap. That is really where we have to start over. Yeah. And it sounds kind of obvious, but, you know, the degree to which people lose sight of it, I'll give you kind of an unfair anecdote. I was in a, a, a school in a, a southern state. I, I won't name it, but went to two different classrooms. We were talking about doing breakfast in the classroom instead of in the cafeteria. And in both cases, the administrator who was with us and the teacher said, you know, it's a great idea, but look at the carpet here. We can't do that because we have such a nice carpet. And I'm thinking, when I heard it the second time, I was thinking, how can this be about the carpet right. and not about the kids? Right. You know, but, uh, but you know, and I'm sure somebody a had example. ruined a, a carpet example. and, you know, had gotten fined or it cost a lot of money or something like that. But you could see how kind of the bureaucratic imperatives at some point start to dominate and Absolutely. people lose sight of the, you know, the force from the trees. Right. The, right. the teacher I was talking to on the plane, uh, this young man named Justin, he was telling me that we were talking about his experience and he was telling me that he felt that they needed more mental health services mm-hmm. in schools because mm-hmm. teachers end up, you know, playing that role. Mm-hmm. And number one, they're not trained, really. Um, and number two, you know, they're supposed to be teaching <laughs> other things. Right. So, I mean, do you have an, an opinion on that? I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at the the struggles that our, our core members are currently experiencing and, and when... Well, Larry we, is a great example of that, probably. Too. Yes, at the so, student yeah. level. But when, you, when we lose our first-year teachers or our second-year teachers, we call them core members... We're, when we lose core members, we are losing them most often because of mental health issues, because they are having such a hard time um, handling some of the things that they're facing, having you know having never yeah. experienced things like yeah. that themselves. Yes. But in D.C. public schools, how many uh, Teach for America teachers do you have, or or in the region, if that's easier? Yep. I mean, so in DCPS, we have quite a big contingent, both okay. at the at the teacher level, school mm-hmm. leader level. Um, there was a point when 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 Kaya Henderson was here as the chancellor that 20 percent of the uh, principals were Teach for America alums. 70 wow. percent of her cabinet uh, were Teach for yeah. America alums. Wow. And that is common, commonly. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, we're running out of time. This conversation has gone like really yeah, fast. You didn't get to talk about food enough, did you, Deb? No, but we have we have a closing question mm-hmm. about food. That we'll ask you both. We ready for that? Okay. So we'd love to ask chefs, but we wanted to hear from you as well. Where do you go in Washington, like Little Gem, maybe either your, can't be your own restaurant, your go-to place, or something that maybe nobody's ever heard of? What should our listeners know about that they might not know of? Two Amy's. What is it? Two <laughs> Amy's. Pizza. That's my favorite place. Two, Two Amy's. Amy's Pizza, Bill. Was there last you night? That's a good one, yep. Yeah. Yep. That's my favorite Two restaurant. Two Amy's, okay. Really? That was quick. Good. All right. Okay. I, you can ask any of the staff at Roses. I'm very I'm a huge advocate and what do you, of you, why do you, Which why do you pizza like so do you much? get there? Yeah. I, I just go for the, the wine bar goodies. So <laughs> okay. all their little like daily specials I do. Um, well, what are they? Let's see. So I, went, I actually went last night. We had Josiah's cucumbers with fresh ricotta. Uh, always get uh, anchovies with bread and butter. Love that. My favorite pizza there is the Vangole. So it's got this like white pizza with clams. Mm. You go there on. If you're fortunate enough to get a Saturday night off and go there, then Porchetta 
always a good one. Um, and I like to just go there and like peruse the wine list. And I I don't know a ton about it, but right. I like to try different things. Have you Have you been to All Purpose? I ate at All Mike Purpose Shaw like a, yeah. the first year that they were open. I haven't. They have these garlic rolls that they mm-hmm. that they bring to the table that are just so amazing, mm-hmm. even better than the pizza. I mean, yeah. it's all good there. Adele, how about you? And it could be a place where you take three kids because I think you've got three kids, right? I do have three kids. Uh, or it could be a place where you and your husband just. Get away without the kids, but what's what's a favorite for you? Yep. So you, I feel I feel like probably no one's ever heard of this place. It's called Tartufos. Tartufos. Oh, yeah. Where I is have. It? So it's a, it's That's so funny. The uh, Mater D there used to work at a and another Italian restaurant that my family literally used to go to. We used to have every family event there. It's called uh, De Carlo's. And when the uh, when the um, when the Mater D left. We went with him, and because he he was he made it all. I mean, the spirit of, of, of real service. And now he opened up this smaller, much smaller yeah. restaurant. And there are some things that you know, staffing wise, that he still needs to wrap, you know, to, to improve and all that sort of stuff. But the food there is amazing. I love linguine with clams. Um, and 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 my husband, I don't get out much, right? Because we right. we've got a two year old, a five year old, and an eight year old yeah, right now. Those days are gone. Um, so, yeah. so, <laughs> wow. <laughs> getting to do much of anything, I mean, have a conversation um, is pretty pretty amazing. But anyway, so when we when we do get out, we go there. Um, and and he makes my favorite, slightly dirty martini, which oh, makes me okay. just so happy. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, now we know. Those are the places. Great. Thank you both so much for Thank being you, here. Thank you. Uh, it's just fascinating to talk to two people who are kind of like at the at the top of their field, and you're both so young, and you both have so much that you're still going to accomplish, but it's really a treat fun. to have you, um, and always good to be with yeah, my sister, Debbie fun. Shore. Yes, thanks for having us. Um, great. So, Seth Wells, um, Rose's Luxury is the place to find you. That's right. Um, and um, Aaron... Silverman has two other restaurants as well. Little Pearl and Pineapple and Pearls. Okay. And they're all kind of Capitol Hill area? All in Capitol Hill. Great. And um, Adele, what's the best way for people to learn more about Teach for America? Website? Yes, the website. Is there, uh, is there a local website or just the national one? There is one? both a national one. And if you go to the national one, you can look up the D.C. region. And I would strongly encourage you to because we do things slightly differently here in the region. We're very focused on the the jurisdictions that we serve. So I'm really excited about what we're doing. And well, what's always... that address? www.teachforamerica.org. And then you can look up where we where we serve, and D.C. region is one of the 51 regions where we are. And you're always recruiting more teachers for we the are Corps? always recruiting more teachers, absolutely, teachers and leaders. Uh, Adele and Seth, thanks so much for being Thank with you. us. Thank thanks. you. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. If you want to listen to other episodes, uh, if you've enjoyed this one, please uh, go to our website, addpassionandstir.com. You could find all of our Uh, archive of episodes there, about 130 great conversations we've had with chefs and social justice advocates and policymakers. Uh, You can uh, rank us and rate us and subscribe and let your friends know about it. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.